All right. Let's open in prayer. God, we're thankful so much that you set one day aside out of all seven, and the rest six are given to us, and only one day you ask for it to be given to you. You are good and gracious, God. Help us to understand your word. Thank you for the time of Sunday school where we can do more teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we are in the larger catechism, 103 to 110, which is uh, commonly known as the first and second um, of the Ten Commandments. But it's important that we understand from where we came. And uh, last time we had teaching of Sunday school because once every month we have singing the whole time of Sunday school. So two Sundays ago, this was the summary that some of you might remember. Having seen what the Bible teaches us to believe or to know about God, it follows then for us to consider what is required of us. So the Bible teaches us what we should know about God, who God is, and then after that, we need to know what our response is in light of who God is, and thus the Ten Commandments. But before I um, continue, who is the us? Having seen what the Bible teaches us to believe or to know about God, it follows then for us to consider what is required of us. Who is the us? Certainly the regenerate, but all men everywhere. All men everywhere. The regenerate is what we have in mind, and it's easy for us to say we need to know because we've been called by God, we've been baptized, we understand God, we understand that Jesus loved us, and we respond by loving him back. But who in this world didn't, was not created by God? Who in this world does not all, owe all duty and honor and glory and praise, as we say at the end of the sermon, or in the service every, every Lord's Day, who does not owe their next breath a debt to the God that gave them birth? Everyone does. So in some sense, everyone needs to respond, but we also know theologically, because God chooses to elect some and chooses to pass over some, we're talking about the us as being the regenerate. So, when we are studying scripture of any sort, when we're taking our next breaths, when we're deciding what we're going to do, we must remember that God is God and we are not. And how are the Ten Commandments summarized? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so with these Ten Commandments, by definition, if your mom or dad says, go clean your room, right? You're supposed to go clean your room. But by definition, what are you supposed to not do? Anything else, 
right? You're supposed to do this and not do everything else. So every time God gives a command, it is to do. So think of the Garden of Eden, very, the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, creation, right? And what were God's instructions to Adam? You may eat of everything, but not this tree, but not this tree, right? So God gives instructions in the affirmative, and the opposite would be to disobey by doing what we think is right in our own eyes, because every time we sin, we're Adam. Did God really say? Did God really say? Do I really need to do this? Can't I decide this one for myself? Can't I, for this second, be God? So, with children, we oftentimes say to our children, if a mom or dad gives an instruction, and it's true with any inferior or superior, that's how the catechism uses, because we're all bosses sometimes, and we're all um, uh, need to obey the bosses. Um, and so we have these different roles. Sometimes we're equal, but sometimes there's superiors and inferiors, which is the language it uses. It has nothing to do with qualities, abilities, but it's stations in life or metaphysical realities. But with children, we oftentimes say, Delayed obedience is disobedience. Substitutionary obedience is disobedience. Go clean your room and instead you decide to uh, wash the car and vacuum out the car. It's disobedience. If you obey but not cheerfully, that's disobedience. Right? So we need to do what we're told to do when we are told to do it and how how we are told to do it, and out of grateful hearts. Deuteronomy 28, 45 to 47 says that Israelites did not obey and worship him with joy and gladness of hearts. And when we're disobedient, it's always because we're not cheerful and grateful. Because if we really understood that God is God and we are not, and he holds everything, holds all the power, we want to respond in gratitude, gratitude to him, and the fruit of gratitude is obedience. So these are just um, general categories as we move in to the first commandment. Does anybody have the first commandment memorized of the Ten Commandments? Does anybody want to tell me what the first commandment is? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So what does that mean? There's a lot of gods, right? It's like, I always thought there was only one God. Right, there is only one God, one transcendent God, the God, the God that we are called to worship every Lord's day, the triune God, that is God, capital G. All other gods are little g's. Who are some little gods? Who are some little gods? Money. Money. Yep. Sports, time, anything that causes your affection or your idolatry to go away from worshiping the one true God to where your affections are, to where your affections go. Affections, the things you desire, the things you desire. 
they sometimes we think of gods when we read the Bible that um, a made image, right? Uh, something that man creates, and it's a figurine that we worship, and they call those gods, which is the silliest thing in the world. When I was a little child, um, I'm like, I don't understand. They made it, and then they worship it. That just doesn't. I mean, they know it's not God because it was a piece of wood, and now it's a figurine of something. How, how can they actually worship that? It never made sense to me. It still doesn't. But it's any excuse other than to bow the knee to King Jesus and worship the one and true living God. So the first commandment is, thou shalt not have any gods before me. And the me is the God that's revealed himself in scripture to us. So then what is required of the first commandment, right? If God says, you shall have no other gods before me, right? What's required? What's, a, what's required? What, what does that mean? If, if God says this, what's required? What's required is that we are to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and to glorify him accordingly. Right? If he is God and we're supposed to have no other gods before him, that means he is the one we need to obey. He's the one we need to worship. He's the one we need to get to know better and better. So God is holy, and he desires to make us holy because we're created in his image, and we want to be good image bearers. The sin that Adam did, he was our representative, and then we are born in sin, and we sin all the time. And we need to be conformed into the image of the second Adam, which is Jesus, and we need to be sanctified through that process. And oftentimes we try to fight that sanctification process, right? I mean, just think about it. Um, I, I remember um, as a little child thinking it'd be nice to wake up and clean my room. And then my mom says, why don't you clean your room today? And all of a sudden I didn't want to clean my room anymore because it was her idea versus my idea. We all want to be our own little gods. We all want to decide what to do, when to do it. All right, I'm going to go to the second commandment, and then we're going to come back and study them in a little bit more detail. Does anybody know the second commandment? It kind of flows. Everything kind of flows. If there's only one God, and you should only worship one God and seek to know God, the second commandment is what? Yeah, the second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments." Yep. So these are these lesser gods that I made fun of a little bit ago. And while our temptation is not to uh, catch a fish and 
go worship the fish or, or worship a tree or carve a little image of something and worship it. Nonetheless, we always want to worship other gods. And I would say the, the thing that we want to worship more than anything else in America, in our houses, in our circles, who, who we are, is what? We want to worship ourselves. That's called the sin of pride. We want what we want when we want it, and we don't want to necessarily obey God at that time because we'd rather have what we want rather than what God has for us. And we just basically say, I don't trust God, so I got to do it myself. I got to be my own God. But what does it say? Even though the graven images, we might not fully understand or think, yeah, that's not my temptation. You got to think what your temptation is. Even the book of James says, why do you have quarrels among you? What's the answer to why do you guys quarrel? Sisters, brothers, family, why do you guys quarrel? What does James say? Because you don't get what you want when you want it. Right? Are you supposed to quarrel? No. But we want what we want more than we want to be obedient. And then the promise, this is important, is for God is a jealous God. He's the one true living God. He created everything. He transcended. All the other little gods didn't transcend anything. They're the creation, right? They're the created, and God is the creator. And so he's a jealous God, and he visits the iniquity of the fathers to the children. So you see this oftentimes in families that are faithful. They're faithful. They beget faithfulness. They beget faithfulness. And sometimes, you, oh, they were just fortunate they came from a good family. Well, that's true. They're blessed because they came from a good family. But if a family has a pattern of sin, you see that pattern continue to develop and continue to develop and continue to develop. And we want to make sure that in our holiness and our sanctification that we don't continue on. And as parents, you know in spades that you see your sins in your kids. You can even see in siblings, oh yeah, so-and-so's like so-and-so, right? So you can see these patterns. And you might even be able to see them as adults that some of the things that your parents struggled with. But when it says that God will show mercy to a thousand generations or to thousands, how many generations has there been since the time of Christ? It's just a math problem. A generation is 40 years. I know Quinn knows the answer. A generation is 40 years in the Bible. How many generations has there been since Christ? Okay, we'll go slower. What year was Christ born? Yeah, 2,000 divided by 40 is 50 generations. Is 50 a smaller number than 1,000? Yeah, yeah, yep. And during the Advent season, you can read um, Matthew and Luke, and the genealogies differ a little bit because they're emphasizing different things. But how many generations has there been since Adam? Adam to the time of Christ. We haven't even come close to a thousand generations yet. We haven't come close to a thousand generations.
So what is required in the second commandment? This is what you're supposed to do. What is required? The second commandment requires that we receive, observe, and keep pure. That's holiness, right? Pure, holy. You don't want to drink out of a, um, a dirty... Um, a, a dirty dog bowl that your dog has pooped in and licked in, and you don't want to drink on that. You want to drink pure things, right? Um, uh, a friend of mine uses the example that, you know, somebody poops on the floor and then they take poopy water and spread it all around. It's like it, there's no sin that we can't make worse, right? There's no sin that we just can't make worse. We double down on it. And what we need to do, it takes a second to get into sin, to, to sin, and it takes a second to get out of sin if we soften our, soften our hearts. So what is required? That we keep pure and entire all the religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. What's an ordinance? That's a big word. What is an ordinance? It's what is God has commanded. What is commanded? All right, so let's go through and kind of summarize. We need to worship God with true worship in a proper manner, with a proper attitude, and at the proper time, right? Because that's what God requires of us. And worship is warfare, we sometimes say, and you practice like you play, and worship Sunday, we oftentimes say, is the eighth day of the week or the first day of the week. And the first day of the week sets your attitude, and, it, and the next six days follow the first day. If you don't get the first day right, it's easy to get the rest of it wrong. It's no different than when you're taking a test, right? You get the first main problem wrong, or in a math problem, you're going to get the future things wrong because you're building on a false premise. So the first day of the week guides our six days of the week, right? And it also flows then why Christian education is important. Christian education isn't in the Decalogue. The Decalogue is just the Ten Commandments. We find Christian education is an outflow of that, right? Because if we're going to worship God rightly and we're supposed to know God, right, and it goes from generation to generation, doesn't it automatically flow then, make common sense, that we need to teach our kids all about Jesus, all about God, and that means it requires Christian education. If God requires us to worship him rightly, right, the way he says, how he says it, and the manner he says it, does it not make sense to educate our kids that one plus one is two because God made it? God created the heavens and the earth? All right, there's a truth and a standard that's there. And now we don't live in the Old Testament, we live in the New Testament. So the second Adam came, Jesus, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And what does it mean to be a King of kings and Lord of lords? God is God of gods, right? The God over little gods. There's other kings around, but Jesus is the, the king over all kings. When we sing Psalm 2, when some king acts like they're bigger than God, Jesus just laughs in the heavens. I mean, it's just silly. It's almost like when, and none of you guys remember this, but when you're uh, 12 months old or 18 months and you're crying and all upset at your mom or your dad, it's like, it's just, it's laughable. I mean, 
when little kids have their temper tantrums because they don't get what they want when they want to. So Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we must believe it, heart, body, soul, and mind. But oftentimes, um, we give Jesus like 99.9% .9 of our heart, but that little tenth of a percent we want to hold on to ourself, right? But if God doesn't have 100% of you, he wants 100%, just like he wants 100% of the worship. So true worship, 1 Kings 18.21 says, we worship God as he is, and we confess every time we come to church, to everyone that's out there, we confess that we believe in God because we come to church. Think of all people that don't come to church or pick and choose when they want to come to church, right? What is that telling the world? What is that telling your children? Well, sometimes God's important, but not that important. We make fun of people that come to church two times a year. What are the two times they come to church? Christmas and Easter. Why? Because that's important. Yeah. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate Christmas and Easter, right? Why would we be here if Jesus hadn't been born? Why would we be here if Jesus hadn't lived a faithful life, been obedient, died on the cross, right, and was raised again? We'd never come to church. There'd be no hope. So every Lord's Day, we worship and we are thankful for Christmas and Easter. But when we miss church, but my advice for premarital counseling to young people is you make a decision to go to church once. You go. Because if you decide every day, you know, should I go, should I not go every Sunday? Should I go, should I not go? Is this more important? Is that more important? You know, am I getting fed? I don't, I'm, I don't like the way Arnie teaches Sunday school. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I'll, I'll go. Or I'm not sure. Who's preaching this Sunday? Oh, yeah, it's so-and-so. Well, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't get fed. Like, I'd, rather, I'd rather go hear, hear this, guy, this guy talk. What's church about? It's about you. Why do we come to church? To worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to worship our triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we come to worship him. And he only requires one day out of seven days. If, um, oftentimes, if you understand the beginning of the story, the rest of the story makes sense, right? And you have to understand, to understand all the other Ten Commandments, we have to understand the First Commandment. Otherwise, if the First Commandment is not true, why should we not kill? Why should we not bear false witness? Why should we not covet? Why should we honor our fa fathers and mothers? See, all those flow you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And those aren't in conflict with one another, but there's no reason to love your neighbor as yourself if there is no God, right? And so every time we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we're basically saying there is no God. But worse, we say there is a God, but just not in the second, just not right now. So what is forbidden? I'm reviewing again what we discussed. What is forbidden? Any form of idolatry. Idolatry. Right? And idolatry can mean um, worshiping money, worshiping sports, worshiping all sorts of different things. Family can be idolatry. 
Um, people miss church to go up to the cabin and they miss, miss church for a lot of different reasons. Miss church to go watch the Vikings play. Miss church for a lot of different reasons. And it's funny because it's easy to point a finger and make fun of somebody else. I remember as a young man traveling and they, they would take true religion, these cultures would take true religion and then they would add something of their pagan culture in with true religion. And the fancy word for that is syncretism. And I, I just never made sense to me. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Go to other churches. They decide how they want to worship. They don't follow the order of worship laid out in scripture, right? It's, it's um, Charles Finney is not my favorite ever evangelism. He's my least favorite. But he thought that he could create an emotion in a church service to get people to make decisions for Jesus. So who's missing in that equation? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So we should never add um, the opposite of synchronis syn synchronism is the regulative principle of worship. Does anybody know what that fancy word means? The regulative principle of worship. We do what God requires us to do. By definition, then, what is the opposite? We don't do things that God didn't require us to do, right? We do what God says, and then we're not going to do what God doesn't require of us. That's the regulative principle of government. So we do what is commanded, and we don't do whatever is not commanded. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is only what is expressly forbidden would we not do, right? So God commands, right? But what's the opposite? Well, God didn't expressly forget, forbid it. So your dad says, treat your sister nice, right? What are you supposed to do? Treat her nice. What's the definition of treating her nice? Well, I, I, I just pushed her. Well, I didn't push her. I tripped her. I didn't trip her. I punched her. I, you know, I just stepped on her foot, right? So God is not a God that expressly forbids every little detail. God gives general admonitions, general instructions, right? And that's, that's how the, the, the distinction is why we are where we are. Think of all the laws that exist in our land. It's just ridiculous. I mean, there should be one law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Well, you wouldn't kill, kill somebody. You wouldn't, bear fault, you wouldn't want them to bear false witness to you. We want, we, you wouldn't want somebody to punch you. Right? But we make all these little laws. Right? And why is it that we don't get worship right? that we don't get God as God and I am not. And everything flows through on all of that. And the principle that I think is a real good principle that we need to understand because it, it's all around us, we think somehow there's neutrality, right? Everything's neutral. But is there, is there a concept of neutrality when it comes to God? Or God's? 
Is there neutrality? There's no neutrality, right? Ever since God ascended into the heavens, he's been reigning on earth. Every square inch, the Lord says on this earth, is mine, right? There's no neutrality wherever you go. Neutrality is a myth, right? But we, we believe it. And when we, when we believe it or we're nice to it, you know, if somebody believes there's, a neighbor believes there's, there's neutrality, well, you couldn't teach that because, you know, you have to give choices. Everybody's got to decide for themselves, right? Sometimes instead of being loyal and true to God, we want to kind of win this person's affection, right? But in trying to win this person's affections, win this person over, who do we put on trial? God. We put God on trial. We say, well, I know there might not be neutrality, but I can see how this person thinks neutrality. So I'm just going to I'm just going to talk about neutrality, right? And then I'll, I'll try to give enough evidence for them to believe in God. God is never on trial. He transcended. He created everything. Everything. That's why Romans 1 says look around. No man is without excuse. Everybody knows with any common sense that thinks for a second, right, that something greater had to create this. Um, Daniel Ralph's oldest son, our pastor, um, that's coming soon, his oldest son is named Noah. You may or may not remember that, but he's doing college classes at Cambridge. And you think, oh, Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, these big institutions, you know, they really believe in, in uh, evolution. They're, and they did. They were the first institutions to believe in evolution. And I pick on evolution because that's the opposite of God created, right? It's opposite. So if you really believe in evolution, then why believe anything with God, right? And we're just a bunch of molecules floating around, crashing together. Um, there's no reason to follow the Ten Commandments. But Cambridge has taken all evolution out of its curriculum because there's been so much evidence that counterdicts evolution that evolution is purely poppycock. Now, they're not willing, that's a scientific word, poppycock. You can look it up. I'm making fun of myself. Um, they're not willing to go back to their tradition, their history, and say, we've got to bow the knee to King Jesus. There's a transcendent God out there. But they do know that there's no evidence for evolution. But every square inch, every square inch of this world is God's. There is no neutrality. There's no neutrality. But yet we keep wanting to tell ourselves over and over again that we are God's. And even and to a certain extent, each of you are God's in a little g. What do you have command over? You have command over your families. You have command over your employees at work. You have command over a lot of different things, right? And as little gods, um, if you represent the true God well, more authority is going to be given to you. Later on, I'm going to read the text of the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25 for preparation of the sermon. For preparation of the sermon. And uh, what's, the, what's the parable of the talents? There's a t and it's, it's talking about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Right? The kingdom of heaven will be like. So to one guy, the person in charge gives five talents. 
Another two talents, another one talent, right? And what happens? The one that he gives five to goes out and invests it and earns, earns a return in that talent. And you can think money, because in this case it's money, but you can think all the talents that God's given to you, all the resources that God's given to you, your abilities. It's everything that God gives us because there's nothing that we gave ourselves. Every once in a while I'll see a, um, a talented man or a talented young woman and I say, wow, you know, God gave you beautiful eyes or beautiful hair. Um, and they'll say, well, thank you. And I said, oh, no, you don't thank me for giving you the compliment. You need to thank Almighty God because he, he gave you life, right? And you didn't decide to have, have that beauty given to you or that athletic ability given to you. Everything we have is, is God's. So in the parable of talent, God gives us talents, five, two, and one. The guy that he gives five goes out and invests and works hard. And when the, the master comes back, he gives him five. Five plus five is 10. And then the second one, two, two plus two, four. But what happened to the guy that had the one talent? What did he do? Yep, he buried it. And why did he bury it? What was the excuse or the reason that he gave? Yes, only if you're going to say out loud that everybody can hear. He was afraid. He was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of the master because the, mas the taskmaster, the master, had a reputation for being demanding. And so what was the response of the master? To the one that buried his talent in the sand or buried in the ground. He was not happy, right? He was not happy. And what did he do with that servant? He took away the talent, and who did he give the talent to? the one that had been faithful with much, right? And that's just the opposite of what is in our water in America is that, oh, well, we gotta take from people who are faithful and give to people who aren't faithful because everybody deserves a chance. There's neutrality here. There's neutrality here. Or the problem is education. And you're right, the problem is education. But what's the education, right? Is it education toward neutrality, or is it education, God, man, and follow, follow the Ten Commandments as it's laid out in Scripture? Do we want to know God and then seek to obey Him, or do we want to teach more people in our public school education systems how they can be little gods and do what they want and have freedom? Do you remember the definition of freedom that we talked about? What's the definition in our waters and in America, where we live, what's the definition of freedom? If you ask most people what freedom is. I'm free to do whatever the hell I want to do. Right? Whatever, whatever I want to do, America's great because I can do it. I, as long as I don't cause harm to somebody. But whatever I do in my own house, as long as I'm not causing harm to anybody, I can do whatever I want to do. My body, my choice. What's the biblical defi definition of freedom? I had a Christian man text me this question this last week, and he's a Christian man from Atlanta, and he had no idea what freedom was. It's almost like asking, what is truth? What's the definition for us? What's the story before the Ten Commandments? What's the story before the Ten Commandments? What's freedom? 
Got to know the story. Story always wins, C.S. Lewis says. The people of Israel were in Egypt for how many years? Yes, loudly? 400 years. And what was their position in Egypt when they left? What was their position of the Israelites in Egypt when God called them out? Yes, yeah, say it loudly. That's right, they were slaves. They were slaves. Yeah. What was our position before God quickened our heart and called us unto him? We're slaves to our sin. We're slaves to our sin. And now what are we free? When God says we're free men, right? What are we free to do? We're free to worship God and we worship God in all holiness and in truth through obedience to him, through obedience to him, right? We're free to obey. It's a big misconception because if you ask lots of broad brush evangelicals, what did Jesus conquer on the cross? Oftentimes you'll hear answers like, well, he, he conquered death. You know, that's why we're not going to die anymore. That's why we're going to have eternal life. Well, he conquered death for himself, but death for us still continues. What did he conquer on the cross? Sin. Sin. We're no longer slave to sin. We're free to obey. Sin doesn't control us anymore. And that's great hope when you're struggling with your sin. You know, God gives you these tests over and over again, and you know you're, you don't want to find sanctification, and you want to be holy, and you want to have a soft heart, and you really want to do well, but you still struggle with you know, all these besetting sins that you have. But at the end of the day, you can take great hope, because why? Jesus conquered sin at the cross. Jesus conquered sin at the cross. So we are free to obey. And when we come to church to worship, I'm going to try to bring it full circle. When we come to, to worship God and we know that everything flows out of worship, right? Who do we give our worship to? Everything's going to flow. We can come and worship God as he commanded us to worship, how and with the right attitude and heart, right? And what's more important than anything you're asked to do this whole week, right? What's more important than anything? Nothing is more important than worshiping God when he told you to do it, how he told you to do it, right? Nothing. Nothing's more important. And then if you get that right on Sunday, is that easier to get it right on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Yeah, because you're rightly ordered. You're rightly ordered. So there's all sorts of illustrations of putting on, putting off, do this, don't do this. If you go through the Westminster Larger Catechism and look at all the scriptural proof references, you go, oh, man, that's right, Israel did that. Ooh, that was bad. Oh, that's kind of like when I do this. Ooh, that's really bad, right? Do this, don't do this. All sorts of scriptural proof references. But our attitude matters, the matter we, we worship God. So just to, re just to wrap up, what is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's required? The first commandment requires us to know 
God, which is why you're at Sunday school, which is why you do your family devotions. It's amazing to me. Sorry, I keep going on these tangents. You talk to a lot of broad brush Christians that are out there. Ah, church is really as important. That's an institution created by man. I don't really need to go to church. You know, I just want to stay and read the Bible um, on my own and get to know God. It's like, if you read the Bible, you know that God requires you to go to church. Don't forsake the assembly of the righteous. But we, we cut and paste scripture on how we want it, want it to be. But coming to Sunday school, why do we teach? Why do we encourage family devotions in the families? So that you know God. And the more you know God and really understand God, the more you know he's all worthy of all worship and praise. All right, the second. So that's what's commanded. What's forbidden then is what? Worshiping anything else, putting anything above God, anything. What does anything mean? Anything, putting anything above God. And when you worship somebody, it's just not say, yeah, that's God, praise God, and now you go do something else. No, you don't. You worship God, and Jesus said, he who does not love me, or he who does not obey me does not love me. He who does not obey me does not follow me. If you do anything other than worship God, it displeases God, and all things that displease God are called three-letter three letter word? Sin. That's exactly right. And then are there blessings and curses associated with obeying God? Yeah, blessing and curses with obeying God. So as we think about our true worship, right, not graven images, the one true living God, then that'll be flow, that'll flow out. And don't think in terms of, because this is what, you know, in, in Adam and Garden of Eden, did God really say, right? Did God really forbid these things? He didn't expressly forbid these things, right? Did, did mom or dad expressly forbid these things? Did my husband forbid this? You know, did my boss forbid this, right? No, it's not about what was forbidden. It's what was commanded. But how we come up with the excuse to believe a lie is we always question, what, was this expressly forbidden? And that's how we often find ourselves in sin, right? And that's why we try to follow as closely as possible the regulative principle of government. That's a regular principle of worship. That's why we sing psalms, because that's the hymnal book for us. That's why we don't have a ban in, in things up front, because we, the Bible says we together are the priesthood of believers, right? So enough, hopefully, to spark your hearts and minds to think that when you come into church on Sunday, how important it is. And it starts, I was always told as a young man, getting a good night's sleep on Saturday night so we have a good attitude when we come in to worship God on Sunday, right? Because there's nothing more important in your whole week and your whole list of things to do, all the things you want to do, than worshiping God on Sunday. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the time you give to us to study your word and to go through the confessional standards as we want to make sure as we go forward we're on the faithful path of faithful men of old. Help us to be faithful in everything we do because we know that you are trying to conform us into your image, and we don't want to let the world squeeze us into its mold. 
Thank you for everyone here. Be with those that are traveling to be at a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.